0: Uh, And as we come to your word, uh, we ask, God, that that you would do uh, a mighty work in each of us, that we might really uh, understand the beauty and apprehend the worth of Jesus Christ, that we might really know how much better it is to live for your glory uh, rather than for our own. We ask, God, by the work of the Holy Spirit, that you would make us more like your Son, That you would help us uh, to know just how much it is that you truly love us, especially for ones here today who may not know you at all. Would you please make yourself known and and let today be the day of salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. One thing that Luke has been emphasizing again and again uh, is this priority and even primacy of Jesus' preaching ministry. The Son of God at this point is a preacher first and foremost, and Jesus is a preacher of the good news of the kingdom of God. He's a proclaimer of that message more than he is a healer or miracle worker or food multiplier or storm stiller, so much so that in Luke chapter 6 and verse 43, Jesus says there, I must Preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. That purpose is preaching that gospel and that good news to as many people in as many places as he could get to. And it is in the opening three verses of Luke chapter 8, our chapter, that we find Jesus doing the very same thing. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus went on through cities and villages. Proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. This is Jesus's priority. But we come to a text now where the emphasis is not on the preacher, nor is it on the content of the proclamation. But we come to a text now where the emphasis is more upon the hearer than it is upon the speaker. Because. While the preacher does have a responsibility to proclaim the word of God rightly, the listener has an equal responsibility to receive it rightly. Preaching is one thing which is utterly crucial, but hearing is just as utterly crucial. And this text before us is all about hearing the word of God when it is preached. This hearing involves a lot more than sitting down in a chair. And listening to the words that are being spoken, hearing involves a lot more than that. And so this is a very important passage about how we hear the Word of God, because how we do hear it determines everything about us for now and into eternity. And it is in this text this morning that every single one of us is contained, and all kinds of listeners are included, and every type of hearer is explained. We read in verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold." As he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This parable that Jesus gives to the massive crowd of people who have come from town after town after town to listen to the words that would come out of his mouth is a parable about hearing. This is a parable about how people are or are not really listening to him and the reasons why. Because there are those who have ears, which we all have, who do not really hear. The hearing that Jesus is talking about in this parable is not what merely happens at the ear level, but what happens at a much deeper level than that. And with the sea of people in front of him, Jesus is under no false illusion that because there is a crowd... And that because there is this big, excited following, Jesus is under no false illusion that those who are there are really letting these things sink in. There are people following him for all sorts of different reasons. The miracles, uh, the buzz, uh, because this seems to be the next popular movement. And those numbers can escalate quickly when there is that critical mass and that communication ability that Jesus seems to have and the the show of things that no one has ever seen in their entire lives. But Jesus is not confusing excitement and hype and numbers with genuine belief and discipleship and conversion. Jesus here is more concerned with the welfare of each of their souls and the gravity of eternity intimately tied to this message which he is proclaiming. Jesus is more concerned about those things than he is about any kind of superficial and temporary movement because Jesus understands that not everyone there has or will really receive his word into their hearts even though they are technically listening to it. Not everyone who has ears has ears to hear. And the illustration that encapsulates this principle is that of a sower sowing seed, which is a very familiar uh, scene in ancient Palestine. A farmer would grab his bag of grain and he would cast that seed, moving his arm back and forth as he walks down the field. And that seed lands in four different kinds of soil. And in each case, it is the same seed. And in each case, it is the same sower. Each soil has a similar opportunity to be the environment for that seed to be received and for that seed to be nurtured and to grow and to bear fruit, which is the entire point of a sower sowing seed. He sows that seed for fruit, for a harvest. But three out of the four soils do not produce what the sower hopes that it would. Three out of the four soils end in tragedy. Some soil is hard, like those found in walking paths. It's hardened by the constant travel of people. It's as if each footstep makes that ground more compacted and more difficult for that seed to set in. It just bounces on the path. And then the birds see it and swoop in and take that seed away. Another soil is made up of rock. It has a thin layer of dirt on top of that rock, and the seed is received into that layer, and though it sprouts, it just doesn't last. There's no depth to that soil to maintain that moisture, to give it any root. The third soil receives that seed, but it also has within that soil competing thorns growing in the very same place. And those thorns seem to grow much faster and become much stronger than what grows out of that seed. It's like all the nutrients are going to the thorns rather than the seed, and that seed is choked because the soil is giving its all to other things. And there is yet another kind of soil, which is quite miraculous actually, for the common yield of most crops was about tenfold, but here we see this fruit is 10 times that much, 100-fold return. And so for this farmer, there are many obstacles to fruitfulness, and there are many reasons why the seed does not mature to fruition, and why the seed does not produce what it had originally been intended to produce. But every kind of soil is exposed to the same seed. And every kind of soil has been visited by the same sower. The difference between a harvest and a tragedy is not a flaw found in the seed, nor is it a deficiency in the sower. And you can already begin to see how this illustration and this visual of a very common scene in ancient Palestine relates to how Jesus' preaching is being received. But before Jesus explains this parable in depth, He speaks to his disciples privately about the utterly high stakes at hand whenever preaching does occur. Look at verse 9. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. When the word of God is preached and when the good news of the kingdom of God is proclaimed, two things can happen. The secrets of the kingdom of God become known or people see and they don't really see and they can hear but not really understand. The proclamation of the word of God produces both kinds of results, one leading to life and the other leading to judgment. And that phrase in verse 10, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand, that phrase is a quote from the book of Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 and 10. And God there tells his prophet, his spokesman, his mouthpiece, his Preacher Isaiah, God says to him, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. One of the primary purposes of Isaiah's preaching in his context was not for revelation or repentance or to bring salvation. No, one of the primary purposes of Isaiah's preaching was actually for judgment, and that is because Israel had long rejected the prophets, long rejected the messengers of God sent to them, long rejected God's very own word, which they had become very familiar with. The nation of Israel at that point could listen and listen and listen with their ears. They held a tradition of worship for generations back. The word of God had always been near to them, and yet they continued to close their hearts towards its message. And God is forewarning Isaiah that you're going to preach, and it's going to harden people even more when they don't receive it. And this ongoing rejection will be to their lasting judgment that those who reject the word of God will be rejected themselves, even though they are listening superficially to it. And here we are in our text, generations later, and God has not sent another Isaiah But God has sent his own beloved son and Jesus has been preaching and proclaiming from town to town and village to village, authenticating his message by signs and wonders and power. And yet Jesus is experiencing rejection, the religious leadership almost as a whole. And even most recently, Jesus himself visits Simon, the Pharisee's house, and he demonstrates his own ability to forgive even the most wicked kind of person because the Son of God has come to deal with our biggest need and our worst dilemma, which is that we have each and we have all sinned against a holy God. Jesus declares in Simon's house that he can forgive sin, and this Pharisee can take in the entire scene with a forgiven and formerly very famously wicked, sinful woman worshiping Jesus with all of her heart, weeping at his feet, and this Pharisee is not moved in the slightest He looks upon Jesus with contempt. He looks upon Jesus with eyes of rejection. And as Jesus sees the crowds of people who have bought into the hype but have not necessarily brought that gospel into their hearts, he is telling his own disciples privately and very clearly that some, some by the grace of God will listen and hear and receive this word and others will only listen ear deep and they will not see and they will not understand right here where it counts. Because in the proclamation of the Word of God, two results will often occur belief and rejection, softening or hardening, salvation or judgment. Let me read to you a, a quote from John Piper. He says this This teaches us something very important about preaching. Even when preaching the word of God does not soften and save and heal, it is not necessarily ineffective. This preaching of the word may be doing God's terrible work of judgment. It may be hardening people and making their ears so dull that they will never want to hear again. These are the stakes, the high stakes, brothers and sisters, whenever the word of God is preached. It will either soften us or it will harden us. It will bring us to repentance and change or it will further prepare us for judgment. And with Jesus again looking upon the very excited crowds and knowing that all of these have heard the good news of the kingdom of God, he knows heartbrokenly that not all of these will even enter into it even though it is the Son of God and the King himself who has personally invited them in. Jesus knows that his preaching and proclamation ministry will have this twin effect of saving some and hardening others, of bringing some in and pushing others even further away. And we'll come back to this concept next Sunday, God willing, in the next passage. But for those of us here who do believe, I want you to notice that our own belief and our own understanding of the secrets of the kingdom of God, and and that word secret there is not some kind of riddle or puzzle. It merely means something once hidden and unknown is unveiled and revealed and now known by God. But it is our own understanding of the secrets of the kingdom of God. This is not due to us being smarter than others or being more spiritually sensitive or being less sinful, or having this innate ability to just put two and two together. No, Jesus is very clear here that for those of us who do believe, the text says in verse 10, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. This is a gift and not a wage. It is of grace and not of merit. This is totally undeserved and unearned, which should condition our responses to those who do not believe what we believe. There should not be the slightest arrogant or, or the smallest tilt of the head to look down our noses upon those who have not received this gift at all, as if somehow we received it ourselves because we are better. For what is ours brothers and sisters, that has not been given to us. If you believe the gospel, know that it is a gift that not everybody gets to have. And so love your neighbors without pride. Minister to your unbelieving family members with patience and serve each other without any kind of arrogance and meditate, spend your time meditating and wondering and marveling that you actually get to believe the gospel in the first place. And so again, the stakes are very high. The preaching of the word of God is like this double-edged sword, blessing and understanding or further hardening and judgment. The same teaching that can give to believers the knowledge of the kingdom and of the king can be used at the same time to harden those who continue to reject it because this very same word and this same gospel of the kingdom of God can have a very different effect on different people. We continue in verse 11, and Jesus here spells out explicitly why some who have ears do not really hear at all. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. And the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, As for that in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. The human heart here is pictured as soil, and the word of God is seed. And again, the seed is the same in each and every soil. The seed does not change. The message is not altered. The word preached is consistently the same word in all eras and throughout all generations and really for all time. The trouble is not with the seed. The issue is not with the gospel at all, nor is it even with the sower. And Jesus gives to us uh, uh, these hearers, these categories for why the living word of God and the powerful gospel of the kingdom can be utterly ineffective in the hearts of some of its listeners. Why there are some ears who do not hear at all. The the first soil along this path is a seed which is, verse 5, trampled underfoot and have the birds of the air devoured. This is the the hardened, indifferent person who never actually allows the gospel to sink in at all. It's preaching in one ear and then out of the other. And Jesus here likens the devil to a bird with an eagle eye, waiting and wanting to prevent that word from ever settling or planting in. And it's quite easy for him to do so because a preached word only and ever lies upon the surface of this heart. It never penetrates the mind. It doesn't touch the conscience. This is the disinterested hearer yawning at the voice of Jesus, unreceptive to the truths which can save and forgive and transform a person who is very far of God and bring him right back into his bosom. The word lays merely on the surface of this person's soul. And oftentimes that heart and that soul has been hardened by feet trampling all over it. In the culture of our times, which is the air that so many of us breathe without even knowing it, Can so easily make this book all the more foreign to us. This says what about humanity? I can't believe that. This says what about the nature of God? I don't think so. His design and creation, his rights as author of creation, his plan for the church and the family, this need to repent, that's unhealthy. It's not positive. This is utterly ridiculous. Humanity has no such need. We can do what we want, we are under no such authority. And therefore, we will face no such judgment. As a matter of fact, if there's anyone who needs to be judged, it is God if he's even out there. We don't answer to him. He must answer to us. Let humanity do what we want and be what we want, even if creative biology says otherwise. Marry who we want, live how we want, kill who we want inside of me if it makes me happy. Whatever makes me happy is my rule because personal fulfillment and individual satisfaction and my expression of who I am really on the inside, that trumps everything. I think that's the air that's surrounding us currently, which can make the modern hearer listless at the preaching of such foreign truth of the word of God. Those are the footsteps that can compact our hearts and densify them so that they remain impenetrable by the gospel and hardened to the only thing that can save us and free us from such a narcissistic idolatry of self. Notice this does not happen by accident. There's a personal being behind such an attack. The the devil has a real, a very real interest in making sure that the word of God never sinks into you. And it is his great joy to see people perish, It is his ultimate aim to have people fall in love with the reflection in the mirror, to worship the creature more than to look and enjoy the creator. I think this is happening in our day and age, and in the first century was the religious people, the the Pharisees and the the, the vanity smurfs who would never let Jesus nor his word sink any deeper than their ears or make any kind of impression on them. And there are many today with no response and no new birth and no fruit whatsoever, which is precisely Lucifer's goal, so that they may not believe and be saved, the text says. This is why every time preaching occurs and every time there is a hearing of the Word of God, it is real, genuine spiritual warfare. This is why, if there's anything Satan would like to do, is to remove the word from pulpits and from churches entirely and make them about something else. And frankly speaking, he has already taken so many pulpits and turned them into self-centered, self-help, positive thinking pillars of idolatry who never want to talk about sin because that doesn't land with our audience, nor the holiness of God. We're not going to mention it. It makes people feel uncomfortable nor the need for repentance, nor the gospel of substitutionary atonement because the wrath of God must be dealt with, which therefore cheapens this amazing love which is found in the true gospel where Jesus Christ dies for the wicked. Why does Satan want this? Because once you begin to feel your true need and understand your real condition, you're gonna start looking for the only one who can help you. And therefore, Satan is invested in pulpits who never wanna talk about sin, and who avoid preaching this true need, which only then produces denser and denser hearts where the unadulterated Word of God can no longer even penetrate. And so this first soil is indifferent and hardened to the truth of God's Word. The second soil is on that rock, and there's a thin layer of dirt which actually does receive the Word of God. And the Word can actually sprout something in their hearts. You know, on our CMU wall, uh, right underneath our gutter, which is leaking through this tiny hole that I haven't fixed yet. But on that CMU wall, because of that dripping water, we have these little sprouts growing out of the concrete because of that leak. And they grow about that high, a couple inches. But that's about the peak of its growth because the root of that plant is shallow and superficial. You can't break through the concrete. And you can just pluck them out with ease. And there are many who are around the church and even grown up in the church who may be around Christians their whole lives. And at one point have been very interested hearers of the word of God and initial recipients of the gospel message. But when they go off on their own and begin to live their own life, because there's no root, that shallowness of understanding cannot bear the heat. And you could just pluck them up with ease. This kind of profession doesn't sustain any kind of real spiritual life. We've seen this time and time and time again when young adults go off to college and become their own person. We see this time and time and time again when some hear the gospel, even have tears in their eyes, singing at the top of their lungs, and they want to get baptized and become members, and for a little while, they're full of what seems like gospel joy. But the moment that reality starts to sink in, and that emotional high wears off, and the buzz is gone, and Christianity is not as welcomed as it once used to be, and they begin to feel the weight of that cross that Christ has called his people to bear, And that life of repentance that we are to be engaged in is just too tiring. And the stares of the people who don't agree with me are just too uncomfortable. These disapproving looks of the world, that when that is all felt, it's just too much. And the hearing of the preaching of the word of God then is avoided. You see them missing church all the time. And then the old habits call out for us to return. Maybe that happens first. They return to substance abuse. They turn back to pornography. They begin to date around and yoke themselves to people who do not give a rip about Jesus. They start to sleep around. They begin to reinvest themselves into other things that they were into before Christ had ever said anything. And these who were so initially into Jesus with all of that green vitality, they become scorched and quickly brown almost as quickly as they come up is sometimes as quickly as they go down. And they often become antagonistic to the faith that they once professed to love. And we're seeing this more and more in all of these deconstruction stories of these formerly famous Christians, especially now that Christianity doesn't help their career anymore. And it's less and less cool. This is perhaps the most difficult kind of person to witness. It breaks your heart. You look and pray through your directory, and we each know people that break your heart. It's the kind of faith that stands up to no test, it's the kind of hearing that does not last. It's more emotions than it ever was substance. And we can often be taken aback because sometimes it is that people go pretty far in the Christian life before they turn right back around. But Jesus is letting us know that this has been the case and it will always be the case. And therefore, do not be shocked because it happened even when the Son of God is the preacher himself. And so there will be many hearers who seem to have genuine faith and even tears, and initial repentance, and yet there are no lasting marks of conversion. I think we are today at a crossroad of sorts. In our society, and yesteryear used to look very favorable on Christianity. You move to a new town, you join a church. Then it began to view uh, believers as just intellectually inferior. This devotion to this unseen God, you believe this book, that just sounds dumb. And now it's becoming more and more the case that we're not merely labeled intellectually inferior, but we're also being called hateful and bigoted. And those banners are just too distasteful for many to sit under, even though we never put them up ourselves. But the test of time and and the test of social discomfort and the test of cross-bearing shows forth who has really listened and who has ears to hear and those who have heard it only superficially and only let it sink in in each deep. And the question for each of us at this point in the text is, do you have a faith that can stand up to the test? Is your faith in an inch deep? Can you just tuck your belief out in a matter of seconds? Is your belief merely superficial? The Son of God is calling out to us to check if his word has really been planted deep. This third soil has progressed even further than the other two. There's roots, there's deeper growth, uh, there's something that's lasting. But the problem with this heart is that there's competition within that same soil because there are other things growing alongside the word of God. You know, it was about 20 years ago, I took a short-term uh, missionary trip to the island of Mauritius. It's a tiny island in the Indian Ocean. It's like our island. And one of the things that struck me was in front of many of the homes, and I don't know if it's the case now, uh, this was a long time ago, but in front of many of the homes then, there would be this wooden stand, kind of like a mailbox This wooden stand with a box on it with a little roof, and it might be covered in glass. It might be open, but in that stand would be a statue of this Hindu God and a statue of that Hindu God, and right next to that statue, there might be a statue of Mary, and right next to that, even a a statue of Jesus on the cross. I remember asking, how can that be? Those things are completely in contradiction to each other, and the missionary there explained to me that the people love to add gods to their collection because they're trying to cover all their bases. If this one's not real, at least they have another one to fall back on. But many are not going to go all in with just the one. And there are many today who are doing the very same exact thing. We just refuse to go in with just the one. But brothers and sisters, when we receive the gospel of the kingdom of God, it's not something to be added to what is already there that we already put our confidence in prior. This is a faith that calls us to cast away the very things we used to put our trust in. The problem with this oil is that the cares of the world, the desire for riches, the seeking out of the pleasures of life are three other gods in our little display case standing right next to Jesus. And while some may cast them away at first and cut those thorns and trim those weeds out, we never really uproot them. And then they come roaring back and we can spend our time meditating on all the cares of this life and what I need to do to control all of that. And there are those who are in dire straits, and it is important to deal with your cares. But we can so often be uh, disproportionately anxious about everything around us as if God were not even there. As if God did not say, look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field and how they're fed and how they're clothed. Seek first the kingdom of God. And for those who are not in dire straits, maybe the more affluent, we can hear the Word of God preached on Sunday and fantasize almost at the same time, what kind of boat or what kind of car or what kind of vacation I'm going to go on next. The pleasures of this life swallow up all thought of the next one. This trio outgrows the seed and priorities get reversed and we place this undue emphasis on things that we can't take with us and spend the most of our time thinking about things that aren't going to matter a thousand years from today. J.C. Ryle, this is what he writes, The things of this world form one of the greatest dangers which beset a Christian's path. The money, the pleasures, the daily business of the world are so many traps to catch souls. Thousands of things which in themselves are innocent become when followed to excess. Little better than soul poisons and helps to hell. Open sin is not the only thing that ruins souls. In the midst of our families and in the pursuit of our lawful callings, we need to be on our guard unless we watch and pray these temporal things may rob us of heaven and smother every sermon we hear. We may live and die as thorny ground hears. Now notice that this kind of soil and this kind of heart doesn't have an obvious initial indifference and hardness like the first soil does. It doesn't have this apostasy and this dramatic falling away like the second soil does. But this very soil may be in the church to the end. And tragically, because there is so much competition in his or her heart, that word of God is choked out by undue regard for this very short life on this passing earth. And there are many of us here today where the thorns are winning out and those cares and the desire for more wealth and the seeking of the pleasure of this life fill our mind and occupy our fantasies more than the son of God who has given himself for us and we can get to that place where we hear Sunday after Sunday the beautiful good news that Jesus has come from heaven to earth because of his love for us and his love is such that he's not trying to fix our superficial problems or make us move further on up to the west side but he looks loves us to the degree that he chooses to die for a sinful race because he loves even the worst of us and the most evil of us even when he knows intimately how bad we can be that Jesus has come to seek out the most traitorous and we can hear about his death upon the cross because he takes his sin off of us and puts it on himself We can hear the resurrection being preached, how he defeats the power of sin and defeats the power of death, and his sacrifice on our behalf is accepted. We can hear about the power of his blood to wash away our deepest stains of iniquity. We can hear about the ascension proclaimed, that Jesus is at the right hand of God, interceding for you right now, because he's with you every step of the way, and he's going to return soon for his bride, his bride, because that's the only term to describe just how much he loves his people and we can hear it Sunday in and Sunday out and still somehow be more occupied with what school am I gonna go to and what career am I gonna choose and what am I gonna name this future potential kid how many points am I gonna score on that Saturday how can I map it so my kids become rich and successful this is a tragedy of tragedies it's a thorny soil with too much competition in the heart, too many things to be distracted with, undue, an undue amount of attention on things that will not matter 100, 200, 300, 5,000 years from today. And the word of God's choked. The, the fourth soil is quite different. This person loves preaching. They love to come to church. They want to be there. They don't want to miss a Sunday. They want to hear the word because they want to hold on to it fast. There's an honesty. There's a goodness to this heart. It wants to bear fruit with patience. It wants to nurture that seed. When we cling to the word of God, we begin to loosen our grip upon other things. When we cling to Jesus Christ, we find it harder and harder to treasure anything else as much as we treasure him. And when we must be honest with ourselves and honest with God, when we read the text, we're like, this is true. I am false. And we can bear fruit with patience, this kind of patience that endures suffering and and can last through uncomfortable situations, this kind of nurturing, that deep, deep roots grow that when the storms come, we don't get pulled out, and the kind of uh, long-suffering that results in lasting and mature and sweet fruit even a hundredfold. And the question at this point in the text, is there this kind of fruit in your life? that's visible, that's noticeable, that differentiates you from those who do not even know the gospel of the kingdom of God, that differentiates your hearing from all the other kinds of hearing. How are you hearing the word of God, church family? Are you disinterested in it, hardened, callous by the world around us? Nothing could be more boring than a sermon that went on for five extra minutes. Is your reception of it merely superficial? I like it. I like the idea of love. There's no root or depth or any understanding of a cross to bear. Are you nurturing thorns in your heart, competing interests of things that don't really matter more than the word of God in your life? These are important questions we must always be asking ourselves when we are hearing because at the end of the day and at the end of our lives, more than any point action, I was here, there, and here today, this on Monday, this and that. More than any quick snapshot or any single moment in life, each of these soils characterizes us all as a whole when it is said and done. And these things characterize our response to the Word of God in its entirety. Now, when I was studying this text, asking myself why I spend so much time on the three soils and so little time on the one, it's a pretty depressing week. It's because it's a parable of caution that Jesus gives to the crowds. It's a parable of warning that Jesus issues to all of its healers. He calls out all who have ears to hear because this is a parable of love for us. Love warns and genuine love confronts and real love wants to make sure that we know the stakes at hand. Real love and affection wants to point out all the pitfalls in the path. Love does not let us rest in any kind of deception that we're spiritually somewhere when we're actually not, just because we've heard the word and it's only gone this deep. But this is also training for his disciples. It's not just for the crowd. It's also for his ministers. And there's a temptation for them. You know, one of the most discouraging things in the Christian life, I think, and even in working for the church, is is seeing people here and and not change. Or or witnessing people really getting into Jesus for a moment, and then they fall away. Or young youth kids who grew up in the church, and they really think it's real, and then they leave, and they leave everything behind. And it kind of makes you second guess if it's all worth it. Is this real? It seems like there's a lot more of this kind of soil than this kind? Should we change it up? Should we alter the way we do ministry? I'm sure the temptation for Jesus, let's do more miracles, less preaching, more food distribution, walking on water, and less speaking, more of this less than that but Jesus is training his followers and future followers of this farmer's ups and downs when he's trying to get a harvest and sometimes there's downs and sometimes there's up and every missionary and evangelist on the field and pastors can tell you with name and face the hardened hearts the negative responses and how much seed has been sowed and it doesn't seem that there's that much fruit. And part of the reason why this is such a featured parable in all the synoptic gospels and why Jesus is teaching his disciples so much here is note that the sower does not change the seed. The seed is what gives life. And there are different kinds of soils, but the seed is the seed. James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. How does God bring us to life? By his word, First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. We don't change this. We keep sowing it. The power is in his word. The same power that creates can create new life in each of us. Second Timothy 4.1, what's the command there? Preach the word. You keep sowing seed. Be ready in season and out of season. The reason why I think this is a featured parable is to prepare us, his followers, and his church that some things are going to happen. And there are going to be ups and there are going to be downs. But you got to keep sowing that seed. And that last Soil a hundredfold is utterly miraculous. These disciples, they sowed that seed. They were in jail and out of jail, in the cool crowd and not in the cool crowd, rejected, martyred, killed, beheaded, crucified, upside down. And look at where we are today worldwide. We are literally on a tiny rock in the middle of the Pacific Ocean 2,000 years later, worshiping Jesus Christ because of the seed. Because Jesus was unafraid to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news of his reign and his rule. And he taught his followers to do very much the same thing and prepare us that not everyone's going to like it. But that doesn't mean you change it. And that doesn't mean you keep, you don't keep sowing it. We go to the very end, brothers and sisters. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that, that we actually believe, and that we are a church, that we are a family of people who love Jesus because of your gift of grace to us by the means of this imperishable seed which is lasting. And I pray for each of us here that you would make us the kind of soil which bears a hundredfold that you would sift our hearts of any kind of thorns and weeds that would compete in our devotion to you. I pray that you soften any hardness that would cause your word to bounce off of us or prevent the gospel from sinking down deep into us. God, make us a people more and more that can see Jesus Christ in all of his glory And fall in love with him more than we fall in love with anything else in this quickly passing life i pray god that you would use our little church on the corner of this little island to be a lighthouse and salty salt i pray lord that you would use us in any which way shape and form that you would bring a great harvest to yourself but father please by your mercy keep us faithful to the very end God, give us joy. Give us great joy in everything you are for us in Jesus Christ. And please sustain us therein. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.